Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. Jesus paid it all. And it's, it's the truth. We owe all to him. Like our lives, our worship, our days, our minutes, our hours. Hey, don't store up some idea of one day, then I will. And allow yourself to live days between now and then without offering everything to Jesus. Don't have some idea of when I arrive. The truth of the matter is, is like you're never going to arrive, but you've already arrived. Like you're never going to completely become absolutely like him in fullness until the day that you see him face to face. But you have all that you need has been given to you for life and for godliness because of the knowledge that we have of Jesus. Because of who we've become and the spirit that lives inside of us. Like it's okay that you don't have everything figured out. Do what you have figured out. It's okay that you don't have everything perfect. Just, just start where you're at and say, today I'm going to live for Jesus. Today I'm going to give everything to him. Today I'm going to live in response to his great love. Father, I just thank you for that. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for what we celebrate. I thank you that the tomb is empty and our hearts are full. That what was meant for evil did the ultimate good. And that on what looked like the end on Friday was actually the beginning. Father, we're so thankful. I don't even know how to put into words other than to say thank you. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. (laughs) I have notes on Easter Sunday. Of all the Sundays that my notes may be completely worthless. I have like 18 different things I want to say. We'll see just how many we get through. We're going to take up our offering um, first. Um, You know, the truth of the matter is, is on a Sunday like Easter, to give of our finances, our resources, whatever it is, like of all the Sundays, that this should be the easiest of us. It, it should be this, this day, right? As we're thinking about what he gave for us and, and what our lives redeem, to be redeemed cost him. So um, just hold your offering in your hand real quick before they pass the baskets. Just hold the basket right where you are. Just hold your offering in your hand. And just, or if you already put it in your basket, it's okay. God knows your heart. And so, and, and, and if you already gave online, that's cool too. Just, just hold your hands because... You've already given. And if you don't have anything that you can give, but your heart says, I wish I could, just hold your hands tight and believe that he'll honor that desire. So, Father, we just thank you that we have the ability to cheerfully give to you and hold nothing back. Father, thank you that everything we have, every good and perfect gift has come from you. We believe that, God, because we believe that you're better than we know. We have no problem releasing anything you ask us to release. Believing that you're good. 
that you love us and that your plans for us are to bless us, not to harm us, to prosper us and to give us peace. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Happy Easter Sunday. He's risen. <laughs> he, he's, he's alive. The, the tomb is empty. Our hearts are full. Our lives are full of him. You're as full of God as you want to be. That's the good news this morning, is that he gives the Spirit without measure. You are as full of him as you want to be, as you've made room to be, as you have asked and desired to be. Yeah, so, so the person you know who you believe is the most full of God, they have the same access to God that you do. They drink from the same cup. They've just opened up a little wider, made a little bit more room, and drank a little bit longer maybe. But the good news is, is if you see something in anybody else's life that's the result of following Jesus, there's a place in him that you can come to where you can walk in the fullness of that. Isn't that amazing? It's a level playing field. Like every mountain brought low, every valley raised up. It's a level, even playing field. There's no more like hierarchy in the the kingdom of God. There's not the, the anointed man of God and then everybody else hoping to get the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Everybody's been invited to the table and everybody has been given equal access to the king of kings. I'm telling you, this thing, when, when he talk, told the story about, I mean, when, when, he, when he, he gave us the idea of, of the widow with the vats of oil, that thing just keeps coming back to me over and over again, because she decided how much she would receive by how much room she prepared for him to pour out. He, his only thing was, don't just get a few. He says, go get jars and not just a few. Why? He's saying, listen, I want to give so much. There's so much of me I want to pour out. I need you to prepare yourself. I need you to be prepared because I'm extravagant, but I'm not wasteful. I'll give in the measure that you've prepared to receive. And, and I, I just, I keep coming back to that thing because I feel like God keeps challenging me. Of, of, you cannot ask me for more without preparing to receive it. Like you can't say, God, I want more of you and yet like make no more room in my life for him. Because the second the last jar was full, the oil stopped. Not one second before. It's such a display of his character and of his nature. It's such a display of his goodness and his heart to bless and his heart. Like, he has so much more to give than we have desire to receive. I promise you, he's never in heaven going, I know you really want more, but I just, I don't know if I have enough today. Come on, it's always on our end. He's unlimited. Make room. Just make room. Like, do what it takes, because I promise, when have you ever given something to him and what you've received from him not be so much better? This is what happened in the garden. We believed the lie that he wasn't good and that there was something that we could do that would get us something better than what he had for us. I mean, like, isn't that the problem with every sin? Like, every sin says... There's something that God doesn't want me to have that's really good, and I'm going to do something on my own to get it because I believe that what I could get with my own hands is better than what I've received from his heart. Isn't that every sin? Like, what sin could you possibly think of that doesn't involve, on some measure, us losing sight of his goodness and believing that something we came up with or we want or we've been tempted with could possibly be better than what he's already offered and given to us? It's what happened with Adam and Eve. 
They live in, in they're created in the image and in the likeness of God. And they, they live in the presence of God. And, and he gives them everything. He says, everything here is for you. There's this one thing. You know, we worry so often about screwing up God's plan for our lives. Let me tell you something. If it's something that can really screw things up, he'll tell you, don't do this because it will screw things up. Because he wants us to not make, not sin and screw things up because we didn't know better. It would, you would have to actually willfully choose to disobey what he's called you to, to mess something up. He doesn't look at them and say, hey guys, everything in the garden's good except for one thing. If you happen to eat that, I guess you're going to be out of luck. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but you'll know when you eat it. No, he says everything in here is good except one thing. It's all for you except one thing. And I'm going to show you the one thing that I don't want you to do. Because if you're going to mess this thing up, it's not going to be out of ignorance. It's going to be because you willfully chose to disobey what I called you to. Do we make some decisions in ignorance? Yeah, we do. Grace covers that. Does grace cover the willful decisions we make? Yeah, grace covers that too. But there's some things that we do in lives sometimes, and, and, and we're worried. Like, man, I've talked to people sometimes, they're like, I just, I don't know. I want to make sure I'm doing what God's called me to do, and I'm living it. Are you being obedient to what he's called you to? The best that I know how. Is there something he's told you that you're not doing? No, not that I know of. Then you're not screwing things up. Like, his desire for you to become who he created you to become is greater than your desire for it. He wants it more than you do. If you have children, you understand this. Like you get this if you have kids and if you don't, you could still understand it because you saw it displayed in your, in your father and other people's father and your friends who are fathers. They want, a father, a mother wants the best for their children more than the children want the best for themselves. Like you have such a desire to see your children become everything that God created them to become. And you think that you have a desire for your children that's greater than God's desire for his? Come on, he is so committed to you becoming everything he created you to become. That's why he sent his son. Because sin messed everything up because every seed had to reproduce after its own kind. In, in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, it says this, for, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. That word lost there is a, is a, a Greek word which means to destroy fully, to perish or lose. He says, something was destroyed, and I came to find it, and I came to save and redeem it. There was something that was destroyed in the garden. There was something that was lost. Something perished. And I came to go after it and find it and save it and restore it. Now, I was thinking about that a lot this week, about him coming to find the things that were lost and I was thinking one of the first things that got lost in the garden was the idea of God's goodness. The idea of God's kindness, the idea that God really is a good father who wants the best for us. That has to be lost in order to follow the voice of another. So the enemy comes and he looks at Adam and Eve and says, did God really say And then he perverts the heart of God. Why? Because the first thing you have to do to lose sight of God's goodness is have a perverted view of who he is and what he said. 
That's why he's worked so hard to change your idea of God's goodness. Because if he can pervert your view of him, then he can distort his words. If he can distort his words, then he can change your idea of what God's heart is. And once you've lost sight of his goodness, once you've lost sight of what he said, and once you've lost sight of who he is, then doing things outside of what he's called you to is a logical next step. Because if he's not good and I don't know his heart, then anything presented to me is good. Becomes the natural response. So he finds them. You just think about this. They live in the physical, literal presence of the creator God. Every day they walk with him. They know him. It says they were created in the image and likeness of God. That means when they looked at God, they saw who they were. That's why Jesus could say, when we see him, we become like him. And so he says to them, everything I've created is good. And my heart for you is for you to reproduce and, be, and, and, and multiply and be fruitful and, and multiply and cover the earth. That wasn't just about preserving the human race. It couldn't have been. There was no such thing as death when he told them that. Sin hadn't entered the picture. And with it, death. So when he said, be fruitful and multiply, he wasn't just saying, like, make sure you have a bunch of children so that the human race can continue on. He was saying, take what you have, multiply that, and spread out and cover the earth with it. Why? Because his desire was for his glory and his image to cover the earth so that there would be nowhere on earth that wasn't covered with the glory of God. His heart for that's never changed. He told us through the prophets that the glory of God will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea, that the knowledge of his glory will cover the earth. So not only will his glory cover, but the knowledge of his glory will cover. There's a difference between his glory being there and the knowledge of his glory being there. Think about it. The love of God towards you always was, but one day the knowledge of his love came. That's what changed everything. I'm just going to ramble a little bit, and then we're going to take communion. <laughs> I'm trying to get back to the message, and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to mess it up if I try to reel it in, so let's just go. So, <laughs> so he says to them, be fruitful and multiply. And we think naturally have children, which is part of being fruitful and multiplying because the fruit of love is that it reproduces itself. You know another fruit of love is unity? You realize Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are one and that he called us and said that he desires for us to be one even as they are one? You realize that they've never had a conference to figure out how to be unified with each other? They've never sat around trying to figure out what they could do to be unified. They just are love, and love is always united. We don't need to figure out how to be unified. We need to figure out how to become love. I'm just saying they probably don't have to preach to each other the value of being united. Because they're love. If you see disunity and division, it's not because there's not enough teaching about the value of being united. It's because people are not walking in love. Because if we would walk in love, our hearts would be united by the bond of love. And love would even cover a multitude of sin. 
so we wouldn't be so aware of what was wrong that we couldn't be united because we'd be so aware of who we've been called to be that we could let the love that we have for each other cover a multitude of sin. And we could actually walk in true unity with each other, not just because we're trying to get the blessing that comes down like oil pouring off of Aaron's beard. Man, don't ever pervert the gospel into something you do so that you can gain. There's a lot of blessing attached to walking in the favor and the love of God, but that's not the point he is. If your kids came up to you and said, Dad, I love you because you do this and this and this for me, that's cool. But if they said to you, I only love you because you do this and this and this for me, that's a whole different story. There's a, that you can love God for everything he's done for you, but if the only reason you love him is because or so that he will, it's not love, it's manipulation. Right. And you're trying to manipulate a sugar daddy into giving you what you want by doing what he's asked you to do. It's never been his far heart from the beginning. He was never desired for us to live that way. It would always be that we would love him and that the fruit of that love would be all of the things that we see promised. They're the fruit of love. Children are the fruit of love, the fruit of intimacy. That's why he created that for us to see, that when people actually have intimacy, there's fruit there. Yeah, I, don't, I didn't plan to talk about being united, but you know that was one of Jesus' greatest desires for us. Father, that they would be one, even as we also are one. That by this, the world would know by their love, one for another. By your love, one for another. But he didn't say by how many people come to your church. He didn't say by the signs and the wonders, although those things are awesome to walk in the signs and wonders that Jesus walked in. He said that, you know, the things I do, you'll do and greater things. Those are amazing things. But he said, this is one way the world will know. It's the way that you love each other. Now, and, and, and he qualified that he, he, a different time when he was talking about love. He said, what good is it if you love those who love you in return for even the Gentiles? What's he saying? He's saying even people that don't know God as their father naturally respond to people that love them with love. But I tell you, love those who curse you and despi- use you despairingly and, and those who, you know, enemies and people like that. And he said, listen, don't just love people because of what they've done for you. Love them because of who they are and because of who you are. Because when you've become like him and he is love, then the response that you have is love. He didn't come and act some way so that you could act a way. We've got to get over that lie that's been sold to us that we're not actually changed, that we have these dual things going on and you're partially this, you're partially that, but maybe one day and all this stuff. He says, he became sin that knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He became something so that you could become something. He didn't act some way so that you could act a certain way. He didn't say, I'm going to come and act like a sinful man. He says, he became sinful man. He became sin in the flesh so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. At some point, we have to believe that what he did on the cross has a greater effect on who we are than what Adam did wrong in the garden. At some point, we've got to believe that the obedience of the one man was greater than the disobedience of the one. For for by the disobedience of the one, the many became unrighteous. How much more than through the obedience of the one man, Christ, shall the many become justified? Come on, this is talking about Jesus. This is Easter is, 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 the, is the last blow to this thing that the enemy tried to set up where he was going to be the one who would sit on the throne. He's always wanted to sit on the throne. You know the truth of the matter is? He always wants someone besides Jesus on the throne. He's just as happy if you would sit on the throne of your own life rather than him. 
Because if anybody else but Jesus is Lord, he's okay with that. It's the lordship of Jesus that he doesn't want. He's just as happy for you to sit on the throne of your own life as he is too. Why? Because if I sit on the throne of my own life, selfishness will guide me and selfishness will always lead me into looking like the enemy. And they're both trying to reproduce themselves. That's why he wanted them so badly to eat that fruit in the garden. It wasn't about just that one-time thing. It wasn't just about getting them to do something that, that disobeyed God. It was about the fruit of disobedience coming into their lives so that the seed of sin could reproduce after its own kind because God said that every sin, seed would reproduce after its own kind. You think about that for a second. Why did he have them? I mean, he could have had them do anything to disobey God, but he tells them, eat the fruit. God could have had anything be bad, but the one thing he says don't do is what? Don't eat the fruit. He doesn't say don't look at the tree. He doesn't say don't touch the tree. We say those things. Eve said that. God never said don't touch the tree. Here's the problem with legalism. It has a good heart maybe, but it's a misunderstanding and perversion. And when that misunderstanding and perversion gets knocked down, the truth gets knocked down with it. So he says, did God really say, don't eat, don't, don't eat any of the fruit of the garden? She says, no. That's not what God said. God said, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, from that tree we are not to eat or touch. God never said, don't touch it. That may be a good idea, because if you never touch it, you never eat it. The problem is, is when we take our good ideas and make them God's word. Isn't that legalism in a sense? We take a good idea we make it God's, then we teach people that that's what God's like. And then all it takes is someone touching the tree and not dying, and everything else is put into doubt. Be careful that when you present what the Father's like, that it actually comes from what he said he's like and not our idea of what he's like. Because then all it took, I believe honestly, I really believe all it took was the enemy grabbing a piece of fruit, I touched it, Eve. I didn't die. What's he saying? If one of the things you believe isn't true, maybe none of the things you believe are true. The problem is, is the thing that he was doing wasn't something that God said not to do. But if we don't understand the difference between our words and his words, when we doubt humanity's false teaching, it'll cause us to doubt the truth as well and we'll throw them both out. Make sure we know the word of God. Make sure you know what God has said to you. Don't just have an idea of what God is like from what people have told you. Know what he's like because of what he's told you. Know him through his word. Know him through spending time with him and communing with him and in intimacy with him and worship with him and opening yourself up to him allowing him to come in and be with you and for something to be deposited inside of you that causes life to grow. It's why you're created. It's why you're here. It's to become like him and then to reproduce that image everywhere that you go. Well, Jesus said, as the Father sent me into the world, so I also send you. What did he tell Philip when Philip said, we just want to see the Father? He said, Philip, I've been with you this long. How could you ask me to, what the Father's look like? Don't you know that if you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father? 
What did he say? I came to show you what he was like because there was a lie that was bought into a long time ago and his goodness became in question. And so Jesus came. Acts 10.38 tells us, and so Jesus of Nazareth came going about doing good. Why? Because he's trying to restore the idea that God is actually good because that was lost in the garden. And he came to find what was lost and actually restore it. And if we doubt the goodness of God, then everything else comes into question after that. That's all he had to do was get Adam and Eve to doubt. All he had to do was tell them, there's something good that God is keeping from you, and there's something you can do through your own effort that can gain you the thing that will make you like him. Isn't that the lie that we've believed for so long? That there's something in our own efforts that we can do to become who God wanted us to become in the beginning. That's why Easter came to do away with, once and for all, the idea that there was anything that you could do on your own apart from him that would make you like him. I was told that if we run late, we're going to have a big problem. Did anybody see the picture that Sarah Likens put on Facebook of a junkyard with cars stacked on top of themselves? And she wrote, Outreach's front yard on Easter morning. <laughs> Y'all pray for her. That's our children's pastor. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. Isaiah 53, verse 4. He's talking prophetically all about Jesus. There's something in here that even even the things that were declared, Jesus comes and makes right. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4 says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He says, listen, our griefs he bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves, we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. We looked at him and thought, wow, there must really be something wrong with him for God to do what he's doing to him. The people of the time watching him would have thought, man, he really must have screwed up. Because the punishment that he was receiving was reserved for the worst of criminals. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. And and he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we're healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the, caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He's saying, listen, like sheep who went astray, like sheep who didn't hear the voice of their shepherd and follow him where they were supposed to go, we all went astray. But Jesus came, and that was supposed to change. See, we're supposed to understand this, that who we were before Jesus came and died for us and before we became new creations is not supposed to have anything to do with who we are now that he's come and now that we have died and become a new creation in Christ. Like, it's the restoration of God's heart from the beginning. It's, you're not a fixed-up version of you. You're a new creation. Something that never existed now does. 
It's not like he said, okay, you know, you were doing okay. There was a couple things I need to tweak. So come over here into the shop and let's tweak you. And now you're Roy 2.0. No, I died and I was lowered into death with him and then resurrected into newness of life in Christ. And the spirit of God came and dwelt inside of me where once the spirit of this world had dwelt and where I was once an enemy in my mind towards God, reconciliation came and I understood that he's not my enemy. In fact, he's my father. And a whole different way of living came about. Everything changed. I was talking to a friend who was, he was getting ready, a guy that he's been witnessing to and talking to about the Lord, wanted to get born again. And he called me right beforehand and he said, you know, I just, I'm just worried that, that like, what if, you know, I've talked to him about my story and your story and different people's stories about how things changed. And what, what if when we pray, like nothing changes? And I said, listen, how could nothing change? You went from living for yourself to living for the Lord. How could nothing change? You went from a dead in your sin to alive in Christ. You went from carrying the guilt and shame of all the things you've done that you could never forgive yourself for to standing washed in the blood of Jesus, free, forgiven, and without any guilt or shame. How could nothing change? You went from serving yourself to being the servant of all. How could nothing change? You have a new king. You have a new name. You're a new creation in Christ. And even if the choirs of angels don't sing over your head and the light doesn't fill the room, everything's changed because who you were died and who you are is now alive and alive to Christ, dead to sin, alive to Christ, no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. Every one of these are in the Bible talking about who you are in Christ. No longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. That means you have a new master and his name is righteousness. And he's calling you to live the way that you were created to live from the beginning before sin entered the picture. Dead to sin, alive to Christ. How could nothing change? Everything changes. Some people's turn is more dramatic than others. You realize that like the rich young ruler his life wouldn't have looked a whole lot different except for the fact that he sold everything, gave it to the poor. But then Jesus said, nobody gives up everything except to receive more in this life and in the life to come, eternal life. But he was a good person. He kept all of the law. Some people are really good people, and sometimes really good people have a problem with accepting the fact that they actually need a Savior. And then some people just realize, like, I deserve nothing but to die. The truth is, whether you're a Pharisee or whether you're a prostitute, it cost him the same price for you to be saved. It was the blood of his son. Jesus looks at the woman who's kissing his feet and says, Simon, I came into your house and you, you offered me no kiss. You, you didn't do anything for me. But, but ever since she, ever since she's came in here, she's not stopped kissing my feet and wiping my feet with her tears and washing my feet with her hair. And he says, the one who's been forgiven much, they're the one that loves much. You understand, he wasn't saying that the Pharisee had less to be forgiven of than the woman. What he was saying is she understands how much she needed to be forgiven. Simon, you still think you're pretty good on your own. And that's why you don't love me the way that you should. All right, message 14. <laughs> Turn, with that in mind, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to follow him. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. Paul often would, would quote 
Old Testament prophet, prophecy and talk about it. But, but Peter does it here, and he doesn't even say that he's quoting it. He doesn't say for the prophet said or, or that kind of thing. He says this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. He's talking about Jesus, and he's talking about in the context of even if people mistreat you, like even if you're a servant to someone who's an, un, like an, an unkind and not good master, and they mistreat you, he says, like, bear up underneath that. He says, for you've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. I never again believe the lie that Jesus isn't our example and that we're not capable of walking the way he walked. He says he left us an example. Not only did he leave us an example, there's also a requirement once we see that example that we follow in his steps. Amen. Well, that was Jesus. Yeah, but Jesus said, follow me. Well, so you're saying you're perfect? No, but he is, and he said to be like him. I promise you, you'll live a whole lot more like Jesus, trying to be like Jesus, than saying I could never be like him, turning your back on him and living life the way that you want to. Why get hung up about whether we can do it perfectly or not? What does that even have to do with anything? We do the the absolute best we can to follow him in everything. And where we fall short, there's grace. Not live your life completely oblivious and turn your back on him and pray that grace will cover it. What a perversion that is. Grace was never meant to be the covering of God for your willful disobedience so that you could continue to willfully disobey. It was supposed to, it was the grace that was supposed to actually come and empower you to live the way that he called you to live. And when you fall short, there's grace. But that's not what it's supposed to be. It's not a a get out of jail free card that you carry around your back pocket. When you feel like serving your flesh, you play the grace card after you play, after you, you please your flesh. Like, come on. If grace was simply a covering for your sin, then why was Jesus full of grace if he never sinned? Jesus, a man full of grace. So maybe grace was the thing that was empowering him to live the life he lived rather than the reason and the excuse for not doing it. And maybe he said, follow me. Maybe he said that he's our example, that we should follow in his steps. So are you saying you do it perfectly? No, I will tell you right now I haven't done it perfectly, but I'll say this. My lack of doing it perfectly is not my excuse for not trying tomorrow. My lack of doing it perfectly today is never to become my excuse for not trying to do it perfectly tomorrow. And the more I follow him and the more I seek to follow in his steps, the more I become like him. And suddenly things that I was doing are now things that I've become. And it starts to become my nature to respond in the way that Jesus responded rather than trying to figure out in the moment what it would look like. If that's where we're at, is, is, is we're just following Jesus and we're having to ask ourselves, like, WWJD, right? Like, we have a bracelet that says, what would Jesus do? Because we're remembering, wait a minute, my natural response isn't always the right response. And sometimes I have to actually think, what would Jesus do? That's okay. But once you've thought of what would Jesus do and you actually see his example, the more you actually do that, the more it becomes who you are rather than something that you do. And you find yourself having to ask that less and less, not out of arrogance, but because you're actually transformed. Because you've actually become changed. Now you're actually being transformed because the way that you think is being renewed. And you're becoming like him. Because when we see him, we become like him. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. 
For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin. So you're preaching perfection. No, Jesus was perfection. And he said he left an example for us to follow in his steps. And the very first thing it says is who committed no sin. So you can never, ever, ever sin and say it was because you were following Jesus. You have to actually turn your back on him, turn towards something you were never created for in order to sin. It's the first thing it says. The very first thing it says is the thing that so many people get caught up on. Why get hung up on whether or not the person that's telling you that's what we're called to does it perfectly or not? Why not get hung up on the fact that he did it perfectly and said, follow me? And he said that he's not a frustrating father who asks things of his children that they're not capable of. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. You know why he couldn't lie? Because it was never there. If all we give ourselves the option of is telling the truth, it makes lying a whole lot harder to do because it's not actually there. We're trying to decide which one's going to come out. We're not divided. We're not double-minded. We're not unstable in all of our ways. We've determined in ourselves that we're to put off lying to each other, which it tells us to do in the Word. Why? Because you've put on Christ. There's no deceit in Christ. So when you've put on Christ, deceit is gone. You have to actually take him off, step away from who he is and who he's called you to be in order to be deceitful. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. Well, you don't know what they said to me. It doesn't matter because it wasn't as bad as what they said to him because everything they said to him was 100% wrong. A lot of times we're like 30% wrong. We stand on the 70%. But they were wronger. (laughs) Think about it. Think how many times you've been in an argument, a fight, or whatever you want to call it, and you couldn't claim that you were 100% perfect and innocent in it. And even if you were, if you're taking the right that you were 100% right in order to treat somebody wrong, you're wrong now. Why? Because even Christ did not come to to be served, but to be the servant of all and lay his life down as an offering. Why? Because he was 100% right, Judas was 100% wrong, and yet he still knelt down and washed Judas' feet. (laughs) Just think about that. Like, man, it takes away every bit of our rights, but it makes us so free. Because now we only have one choice, just to love. What does it look like to love in this situation? I'm not trying to decide if I'm going to. I'm trying to figure out what does it look like to. What does love look like? Not am I going to. That decision was made when I said that I wanted to become all that he is because he took all that I was. That decision is forever made in the mind of someone who's following Jesus. The choice of whether or not I'm going to love doesn't even exist anymore. Why? Because he said to become like him and follow him and he'd love. And if I said that I'm following him, which is what being born again is, is you, if any man would come after me, he must first deny himself then take up his cross daily and follow me. Christianity is following Jesus if he's loved. And that means in every situation I walk into, there's one choice and one choice only, to love. I'm not trying to figure out what I'm going to do. I'm trying to figure out what does it look like to do the thing that I've already committed to.
While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. If they one more time, think about it, like we give ourselves permissions that he never gave himself and he was 100% right. We're trying to figure out who's right. He's trying to figure out how he can make them right. We're trying to figure out like who's right and he's over here knowing he's right. Yet giving himself up for the chance that they could become right. You don't win when you prove someone wrong. You win when you love. And I'm not saying, like, be a doormat. I'm not saying that you don't stand up for truth. What I'm saying is that our goal isn't for us to be able to say, see, I was right, and someone to say, okay, I was wrong. Our goal is that they feel loved and that they know what God is like so that they actually desire him because it's his kindness, not our winning arguments, that lead men to repent. It's his goodness. See, that was lost in the garden. The idea that God was good was lost. And the idea that there was something better apart from God was allowed into the picture. So Jesus comes and says he came to restore all that was lost. What's he do? He goes about doing good. Why? He wants to prove once again that God is good. That's why he heals Malchus' servant's ear right in front of everybody, even though they were 100% wrong and they were coming to harm him. Why? Because he's letting them know the things that I do aren't because you do the things that I want you to do. They're based on who I am. So even if you're coming to kill me, I'll still put your servant's ear back on and heal him because I'm good and I'm incapable of anything other than that. And then he called us to be like him. For you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep. But now. But now. See, we, we preach all the time that every man has gone astray like sheep. We all like sheep have gone astray. Now that was totally true, but there's a but now. What's the but now? The things he talked about right before that. What Jesus did and the example he left for us to follow. For you, we're continually straying like sheep. You cannot just continually stray and blame it on, well, this is just the way that I am. It's just the way God created me. No, it's not. It's the way sin created you to be. And it's why he came so that you could be born again, a new creation. For you were continually like sheep who strayed, but now. You have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. I'm going to close with this. We'll, we'll take communion. I love talking about these things. It's when you, you see that God was undoing in the garden what was done in the garden. I, I remember, I, I've shared this before, but, but think about this. Why did they pay Judas? to show them who Jesus was when they knew who Jesus was. When I think about it, they tried to push him off a cliff and kill him. 
they went and questioned him. What's the greatest commandment? Trying to trick him. They saw him heal the sick and told him he couldn't do that because it was a Sabbath. They plotted how to kill him. They've watched him grow up since he was a child. He's been in the temple every single Saturday, as was his custom. He went to the synagogue. They know who Jesus is. Why are they paying a man? Because God's undoing everything that was done with the first Adam, with Jesus, the second, the last Adam. The Bible calls him that. He's the second Adam. He's the last Adam. So in the beginning, in the garden, man puts his lips on fruit at the urging of the enemy and betrays God. In the end, man puts his lips on fruit. Jesus is the first fruit at the urging of the enemy and betrays God in a garden. It says at dinner, Satan had already entered into Judas. It's letting us know the same one who was at work in that garden was at work in this garden. But the first time when man betrays God and puts his lips on fruit, he hands authority over to the enemy. The second time when man puts his lips on fruit and betrays God, it's the start of authority being returned to its rightful place. You just think about how many things were paralleled from the beginning to the end. And I call it the end because it's the end of the old. It's the beginning of all that was supposed to be. It's the restoration back to the beginning. The first Adam is a gardener. He had to be. God put him in the Garden of Eden and told him to work the ground. That's what a gardener does. The second Adam, when he's raised from the dead, is seen by a woman and she thinks he's the gardener. first person to touch Jesus when he's born is Mary, a pure, undefiled virgin who's never been touched by a man. Baby Jesus is born. The first human being that touches him has to be his mother because he passes through her body and she holds him. The first person to touch the second Jesus when he's born again. Don't get hung up on that. He died and was resurrected when he comes walking out of the tomb, is Mary. She touches him. But this isn't Mary, the undefiled virgin who's never been with a man, or is it? She was cleansed by Jesus. And I think these things are there. I, when, I, when I saw this, it was I don't know, years ago when I was reading, and I saw that, and I started going, but wait a minute, but this and this, and I felt like the Lord showed me and said, Roy, it doesn't matter to me whether the woman was undefiled because she was never touched or whether she's undefiled because she was touched by me. In my eyes, she's the same. Why? Because you were justified, just as if I'd never sinned. Whom the Son has set free is free indeed. Disciples want to be washed. He says, you're already clean because of the words I've spoke to you. So here you have Mary, a virgin never been touched. Touches Jesus the first time he's born. 
And the next time when he comes walking out of a grave after being raised to new life by the Spirit of God, it says the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. He was literally dead and then raised from the dead. He wasn't asleep. He was dead. He died. And the death he died, he died once for all. You can find it all over in your Bible. He was dead. The Spirit of God came inside of him and resurrected him back to life. Gets touched by Mary, the prostitute with whom he had cast a bunch of demons out of. So it doesn't matter if you're clean because you never did those things or if you're clean because you did those things and he touched you and made you clean. You're clean in his eyes. There's no difference to him. The slate, the record's been washed. It's been wiped clean. So we're going to take communion. Here's the really cool thing. The what Judas did wasn't wrong. It was the why. It's okay to kiss Jesus. He didn't send the woman away when she was kissing his feet. It was the why behind it. The why was there's something God's keeping that I want and that I'll make happen. We're about to do the thing that Jesus said we had to do if we wanted to be part of him. We're going to eat his body and we're going to drink his blood. It's a reminder to us of everything that happened on Easter when the one who sits on the throne and says, I'm making all things new, made all things new. So, Father, we thank you for for what we celebrate this day. God, I thank you that every day we live with the awareness that he is risen, that he died for our sins, yes, but he rose so that we could be raised the newness of life in him. And, Father, I just pray that we would see him as our example in all things. God, that we would never grow weary in well-doing, that we would never give ourselves excuse to not follow in his footsteps because he's Jesus, because the word says that he left his footsteps for us to follow in, and he himself said, come and follow me. God, I pray that this would never be about just praying a prayer so that one day we go to heaven, but that it would become, be about becoming who we were always meant to be, sons and daughters of God, with a new king, with a new father, with a new reason for living, and eternal life once again breathed back into our lungs as the Spirit of God that was in Adam comes back into us and raises us to newness of life. I thank you for that. Before we take communion, the Bible talks about not taking it unworthily, and that's been used sometimes to scare people into saying that, you know, you, know, you better go confess and repent and do all that stuff. And look, if you know there's something that you need to make right, do that. Make it right by all means. I'm not saying not to, but what I am saying is, is that it's not about us examining ourselves and making sure that we didn't sin since the last time we took communion. That would be about the most unworthy way that you could ever take communion. Because you would be saying that what you're about to do is based on your own good effort and your own good works rather than the good effort and the good works of Jesus Christ. So before we take communion, is there anybody here who's never actually entrusted their life to Jesus and surrendered to him as king? 
Is there anybody here who would have to stand before God and give account for themselves based on their own good works rather than the good works of Jesus? If that's you, this isn't like a, hey, say this prayer, we'll give you a card, and then you go back to life the way that it was, and one day you'll go to heaven when you die. It's about saying, I want to follow him, and every single journey begins with that first step of saying, I want to leave the old life behind. I want to become born again, a new creation in Christ. I want to be filled with his spirit. I want to receive everything that he paid for on the cross, and I want to become all that he created me to be. I want to make him my savior, but I also want to make him my Lord. And that means I'll follow him and serve him the rest of my life. Is there anybody here who's never done that before? You could do that right now before we take communion. And all of heaven and all of Outreach Church will celebrate with you. Is there anybody? Anybody at all? Awesome. So we're all born again. We're all filled with the Spirit of God. We're all new creations in Christ. The old is past, and behold, all things have become new. That's amazing. We're going to start at the very back row back there. You're going to go out to the aisle on the side of the building, come down, grab your communion, and you're going to go back down the middle. Come on, let's go. Come like the good banana bread's in the front. It's all good. Yep, and just come right out this, down the center and head back to your seats. We'll, just hold it, and we'll take it all together. The body of Jesus... Every bit of your sin, every bit of your guilt, your shame, every bit of the punishment that you deserved was laid upon his body. And then he was beaten for our transgressions, for nothing that he did wrong. He was the spotless, perfect lamb who took everything that we deserved upon himself and became the sacrifice once for all for the sin of the world. His body broken, beaten beyond recognition for you and for me so that we could become all that he was. And the blood of Jesus that that carried the new covenant, to think that as he walked this earth, he carried true life in his veins. It pumped and beat throughout his body. And when they hung him on the cross... We just talked about this, but I can't get over this fact that they think they're being cruel so that they use nails rather than ropes to tie him. And it says the record that was hostile against us was nailed to the cross with Christ. It took everything they could ever accuse you of, the record that was hostile against you, that was hostile against me, those things that nobody else knows about and that you're thankful that nobody knows. On your worst day, the record that was hostile against you, that the enemy would come and make accusation that would make you unworthy to stand in the presence of a holy God. They took that record, and it says it was nailed to the cross with Christ, and as they drove the nail through his hand, they couldn't see it, but in the spirit, it was cutting right through the record that was hostile against me and hostile against you. And the blood of Jesus began to flow and saturate that paper and soak the record that was hostile. And it began to drip to the ground, and one drop at a time, it carried your sin with it. And it vanished as mercy triumphed over judgment. And the blood of Jesus cleansed us from all unrighteousness, allowing us to enter in to new covenant relationship forever with the Father. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we worship you, we praise you, we thank you for who you are. We pray, God, that the blood of Jesus, that the body of Jesus would never be taken lightly by us, Father, that it would never become our excuse to something, it would become our reason for something, that we would never take it lightly and treat it as a light thing, that you would come and die in our place, 
I just thank you for the revelation that we carry of who we are because of what you've done. Sons and daughters of God, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.